Welcome to the Five Points Podcast. Five Points is named after an area of downtown Atlanta, just steps from our offices at Georgia State University, where cattle paths once converged at the site of an artesian well. The name offers us a metaphor for our goal of presenting a convergence of ideas and genres, artwork and text, north and south, east and west, young and old. I'm Megan Sexton, the editor of Five Points, a journal of literature and art. Join me as we explore the world beyond the page and hear from contributors from three selections from our Volume 19, Number 2 issue. We had the pleasure of publishing a short story entitled Madeline Shepard by the late American writer Andre Debus in our recent issue. I sat down with Joshua Bodwell, editorial director of David R. Godin, to discuss Debus's long relationship with the publishing house and aspects of his early works. Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So uh, my name is Joshua Bodwell. I'm the uh, editorial director at David R. Godin Publisher in Boston. Um, And before I took that position, I worked actually um, freelance as the series editor for a three-volume relaunch of the short stories and novellas of Andre Debus. So we were really excited to be able to publish uh, Madeline Shepard, one of the early uncollected Debus stories from Volume 3. Um, I was wondering if uh, you could talk about what you feel is a quintessential debut in that story. You know, I guess when I look back at the early stories, um, I guess I found them more revealing than quintessential. You know, I think um, there, there are all these uh, touchstones of, of things that Andre would be, I would use the word obsessed with, you know, for the rest of his, his writing career. Although they're still, they're still young stories. You know, right off the bat, it's a relationship story. There are these uh, touches of um, religious tension within it. Um, and that, of course, would be, you know, the fodder for his life's work. You know, um, interactions, miscommunications, struggles, uh, successes sometimes between men and women. That's really the, the meat of his work. This story in particular, um, I love it that it's it's this homage to Hemingway. Um, I think later, certainly, Andre became most associated with Chekhov, you know, as sort of his North Star, his beloved writer. But um, Hemingway was always really his first influence. So for him to be sort of self-referentially, you know, putting that on the page is kind of wonderful. Um, I think if we had read this without the references, we'd say, ooh, God, kind of this is like a wincing uh, imitation of Hemingway. But instead, he turns it into that, that loving homage. In terms of quintessentialness, too, I guess I'd say for, you know, for an early story, by which I mean this is, you know, one of the first five stories he ever published in his life. Um, it's pretty sophisticated. It doesn't doesn't take just a straight linear narrative approach that he uses this this great framing device of of opening the story with the narrator being jarred into his memories about Madeline Shepard. Um, you know, he, in other words, he didn't write it as sort of a straight chronological beginning um, at that time in the boy's life. Um, instead, he's an older man. You know, looking back, which allows him at at wonderful key points in the story that he's, that that older narrator sort of intrudes on the narrative to sort of reflect and think about themselves at that earlier time in their life. I know that's a that's an approach that uh, that framing approach is something that Richard Yates did quite a bit, who had been a teacher of Andres at Iowa. Um, it's a device I love when when Richard Ford deploys it. It was a great 
admirer of Debus. So those things all sort of stacked up for me as I looked at it, um, you know, sort of how it fit into to Andre's larger body of work. And when you read a story like this, you know, it's obviously something that, that holds up and that he would be proud of. Absolutely. I felt like I read a novel after I read that story. Ah, uh, that's a, yeah, that's a great example of what he could do. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he only published one novel in his lifetime, his first book. Um, and for years after, he would always joke, that would have been a decent novella. <laughs> sort of once he learned that he was uh, compression was one of his great gifts can you tell me about how Andre came to be represented by Godin yeah yeah absolutely he knew David Godin and um, as, as David tells the story the two of them met for a hamburger in New York at some diner and Phil uh, slid a folder across to him that had the short stories that would become Andre's debut collection, Separate Flights, and uh, David brought those back to Boston. Um, Bill Goodman was the editorial director here, sort of a a legendary editor in his own right, and uh, within a week, they said, we want to publish these books. And they um, they never forced Andre to write a novel. You know, that was a big thing in that seven rejection filled years, that People were interested in the first book of short stories, but they wanted a a two-book contract that promised a novel, and Andre just refused that. Well, as the house is turning 50 years old and uh, David Godin is retiring, um, and congratulations, you've been named editorial director, Um, what's your vision for Godin during the transition? Well, um, you know, Godin, um, we we, we say Godin for the house, DRG for the man. So it's it's a we have to have like our own vernacular here at the house. Um, so I think you know I think Godin has been successful this past half century based on the talent you know that it's attracted to the to the spirit of the house to the spirit and ideals of independent publishing. So the challenge is always about finding and attracting and encouraging that talent in all areas of the company, sort of our staff, but also our, obviously the authors and illustrators that we work with. So we've been thinking about the transition, not so much about losing the, the man, the individual, the founder, but about, you know, sort of redefining and recommitting to that spirit of independent publishing in 2020 for the next 50 years. So we just want to build a company that people are excited to be a part of and that they want to be a part of both, again, both internally and with the kinds of writers that we work with. We want to be careful, by which I mean, you know, giving care to the books and the authors that we publish. Can you give us a sneak preview of any upcoming titles that you're working on now? So we've got a a wonderful, long, standalone poem by the poet Wesley McNair called Dwellers in the House of the Lord. That'll be out this spring by uh, by April for National Poetry Month. It's a beautiful, um, it, it is beautiful in the end. It's hard in the beginning. Wes has sort of cast um, the struggles of his younger sister in rural Virginia, uh, married to a, a very intense uh, Trump-supporting gun owner, gun shop-owning husband. Um, so he's sort of cast his sister's struggles uh, against the election, uh, the 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 campaign and election of Trump in this this incredible long poem. 
And then um, the other five-point author that we're publishing in 2020 is Meredith Hall. You guys published uh, an essay of hers years ago that became part of her memoir, Without a Map, and we're publishing her debut novel in the fall of 2020, which is incredibly exciting. I've heard Meredith working on this book for the past several years and uh, at different events got to hear her read from it, and I've just been mesmerized and sort of haunted by it. So to be able to arrive here and then uh, bring it in immediately to the house has been incredibly rewarding. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on the catalog and just start reading through your list. (laughs) Sounds amazing. For more information on their fall list, visit Godin's website, www.godin.com. We do hope more of their authors might make an appearance in future issues of Five Points. Next up, we will join a discussion on the poet Nikki Finney, who recently visited Georgia State University as a guest lecturer. Our recent issue features her poem, Hotbed Number 11, from her forthcoming poetry collection, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, as well as an interview with Finney conducted by Georgia State University professor Dr. Elizabeth West. We met up with Dr. West and three of her current students at the GSU downtown Atlanta campus. This is Dr. Elizabeth West. I'm in the English department here at Georgia State University. And uh, earlier this year, uh, we had the um, pleasure of uh, inviting poet and scholar Nikki Finney on our campus. Uh, We were so inspired by that. Uh, Five Points followed up um, with an interview um, that, um, that I headed up. And uh, it was published in Five Points and, and, and went so well, we thought we would benefit uh, by a, um, a blog that consists um, of our students here at GSU as a kind of discussion and reflection on uh, Finney's poetry as well as the interview uh, that was published in Five Points. Uh, so I've gathered uh, three students uh, Dion Clark, who is a graduate student here in the English department, uh, Carla Gomez, who I believe is an English major, uh, undergraduate, <laughs> and then Lloyd Bishop, who's the foreigner in the group. Uh, uh, he is a uh, undergraduate film major. And if I may, what I what I'll I'll kind of lead with is uh, the question on how we view uh, Finney. You know, we typically want to locate a poet somewhere. Uh, And I want to begin by getting you to talk about how you see uh, Finney in terms of her rootedness in the South. Is she a Southern poet in your mind? Uh, She's won the National Book Award. Does that make her more of a national figure when you read her? Uh, when you read her interview, uh, what, 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 what do you think? How, you know, what is your, your, your sense of her? Well, for me, I really do identify Nikki Finney as a Southern Black female poet. Um, and I go from that perspective, especially as it relates to hearing her message um, personally when she discussed with us why she does poetry and what poetry is for her, but also thinking about her historical beginnings and how she mentions in the interview with Dr. West that she wouldn't be a poet and she wouldn't write the things that she does. She wouldn't have the examples 
that she has if it weren't for Black women writers, but also even positioning herself in the South and thinking about being in um, South Carolina and not seeing or hearing poetry and literature that reflected her life. So I definitely see and position Nikki Finney very proudly Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, as a Southern Black female poet. What struck me about her, I know that she is very proud of her Southern roots, but from reading her work, her knowledge is so vast and she pulls from so many different um, mediums, uh, subjects. And so I feel she's more global to me. Can we just imagine that, you know, you can be a black poet, which I think is what Finney is trying to get us to see. You know, I can be a black poet. Uh, Blackness can be uh, global. It can be um, uh, universal. universal. So, uh, So it's a way of making us push against the unspoken assumptions that we make that, you know, when we, when we think and hear uh, through uh, a, a white lens, we don't ask ourselves, is that just a white poet? Um, so, you know, she stretches us, she stretches us, I think, in, 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 that, kind of, in that kind of way. When you um, read the poems and head off and split, uh, um, what does that What does that mean to you? It's a collection of poems, but if you had to argue that there's a story here, um, what what is that story? What What does this collection of poems say to you? And well, it says a lot, so I'll just say one. <laughs> we'll say two. One of the things that I see in her poetry that I love is the everyday life of people, one people but also to the everyday lives of Black people and the ability to celebrate the humanity and the everydayness of our lives. Um, When she talks about in one of her poems where there's a woman and she's bending over looking into her car or someone standing um, looking out into the yard um, in her other book, I think it's called Hotbed, that's also in Five Points as well, her prose, um, about women just standing in the doorway. I love that because, and, and they could be standing in the doorway for various reasons. Standing in the doorway, waiting on their husband, or standing in the doorway, waiting on their children. Or standing in the doorway just trying to see what's going on <laughs> down the street. It's the everydayness of her poetry that I love. And then the second thing that I see in her poetry is the influence of history. And so tying these historical narratives. And for me, literature always allows us to reframe and revisit history for sometimes the erasures that exist, the gaps that exist, the silences that exist. I have a question about Hotbed, actually. Do you think standing in the door is a metaphor for something? Or do you think it's just a straightforward, like, they're just standing in the door? Well, anytime you, you, you're dealing with a poet, <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing is, is simple. Um, the, the only simplicity of it is our own mind mm. and our own limitation. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, 
Because interestingly, I, I want to hear from the rest of you, but interestingly, I was just kind of reading over head, o- uh, head, head off and split again before our conversation. And it's just like it struck me in a, in a, in, in a whole different light. Um, and that's the, that's the magnificence of, of poetry because um, it's, it's so, you know, in, in a much more condensed form than fiction, than the novel, uh, it just, you know, it continues to, like, challenge you and gnaw at you and make you see things differently. Uh, so, yeah, that's, um, it's it's a metaphor for more than, yeah, the woman standing mm-hmm. in the door. <laughs> I assume so. Well, doors are portals, so yeah. it could be anything Mm -hmm. and that's the beauty of it it could she could have people could have been standing in the door doing any number of things and and that is the beauty of it can you you know from her story um see a relevance to your own aspirations yes because in the interview she spoke of what did she bring up did she bring up alice walker and other black women poets that told her she could do it, right? You know, as a film, I, I I aspire to be a director, right? And, you know, I've grown up in a time where a black director, you know, is is way more common now. Like, you know, you know, any anybody could be it if they wanted to. So for somebody like her to basically tell her that she could do it, you know, it kind of resonates with me, not, you know, not as extreme because I'm in Atlanta and I've grown up around the area. So I've always been exposed to that, you know, not that, but like what I've been interested in, you know. I think I, I spoke on this a little bit before when I mentioned what she said about representation and seeing um, black poets, black women poets in that. Uh, validated what she wanted to do. But I will tie in also what she said about academia and how she's, you know, one foot in, one foot out, and feeling like you have to have, like as an artist, feeling like you have to have some kind of learning behind what you do. Everything is everything is cut out and planned and, and shaped. Um, and that gives you some advantages in some ways, but, but, but again, it, it can be very stifling in terms of, of, you know, the kind of spontaneity that I, I think, uh, is so critical to, you know, to, to, to human, uh, connection and, uh, and creativity. And I think that's part of what, you know, Finney is getting at when she talks about the need to keep one foot out of the door of academia, because there is that spirit that you don't want to give away. And if you aren't careful, uh, you know, it, 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 it'll be gone. Uh, you can be lured. There, there are, you know, interesting enticements uh, but, you know, uh, what she's asking, what she's talking about is, is the price that you pay for that. And she says she's not willing to pay that price. From the human emotional connection to human ecological impact, our next discussion offers a compelling perspective on marine pollution. Georgia State University professor Randy Malamud sat down with artist Pam Longombardi to talk about the Drifters Project. 
Our recent issue features a selection of Longombardi's assemblages of objects that she finds washed up on shores around the globe. Her work with the Drifters Project is dedicated to addressing the environmental crisis as it relates to oceans worldwide. My name is Randy Malamud. Uh, I am a Regents Professor of English at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and I've taught here for about 31 years, and I teach classes in modern literature and uh, contemporary culture and eco-criticism. In the course of my work, I have uh, been in, in contact and in close contact for, for many years, probably a couple of decades, uh, with my colleague Pam Longabardi, uh, who is an Hi. artist, and I'll, I'll let her tell you, <laughs> tell you who she is. I am Pam Longabardi, <laughs> and um, I am an artist, but I also have a project that is very... Um, sort of multidisciplinary. It is called the Drifters Project. And it's uh, an environmental social practice that involves the collection and examination and resituation of plastic objects that are taken from ocean and beaches and sea caves from all over the world. So I've been at Georgia State also for many years. And um, I also recently am Regents Professor. So that's fun. And uh, I'm um, also a painter. And so those two aspects of my process kind of balance each other out. About two years ago, Pam and I started talking about collaborating on this uh, this piece that, that came out in, in Five Points uh, in the last issue. And I can't remember. Tell me if you remember, Pam, exactly how we came to uh, to embark upon this project together? I think it's just because I love your writing. Mm. And I really think you have, a, you know, a deep concern and understanding for some of the things that I really care about, which is the human relationship to the non-human world. And I feel like right now we're in the middle of a, a big old crisis, yep. and it's um, not getting any better. And, you know, I think the way you are able to talk about that so poignantly I felt that I wanted to have a discussion with you about my work, and I think it just started from that conversation. Yep, yep. Well, thank you for the kind words, and we have a mutual admiration society because <laughs> I am I am overwhelmed by uh, the power of your of your images, uh, the uh, the images themselves, and uh, uh, and and the deeper thoughts and ideas and. Uh, and guilt and and discomfort and uh, and and everything that is that is beneath them. The the images themselves, the photographs, are fascinating, engrossing, uh, paradoxical. Uh, they are very striking, engaging, colorful images. Uh, and if we're seeing them in the context of art in a literary artistic magazine like Five Points, or I've seen some of your work in, in galleries as well, uh, you know, we're in, we're in a certain mood to look at the art and the form and the composition and the arrangement and, and all of this. And I think we might not realize at first that it's garbage, uh, that it's that it's toxic, uh, that it's gross, that it's dangerous, that it's uh, dangerous to other animals, dangerous to we human animals, uh, that it uh, reflects uh, the, the worst side uh, of our culture and our habits. Uh, and that's, I think, an unusual and unsettling and unexpected feeling uh, for people to have when they're looking at art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think um, it's those feelings that I'm most interested in because 
you know, these, in some ways, these objects are not guilt-free, and nor are we. And I think that, not that I'm trying to make people feel guilty, but I think it just happens automatically. Once you start to realize what we've done unwittingly, unknowingly, and, um, you know, I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm a retriever <laughs> of these things and bringing them back from, from the, the void, you know, they're, they're almost like, I feel like they're, they're coming back from the dead in some way, like ghosts or zombies. Um, they're zombies of, uh, you know, a kind of undead thing, you know, they really are, and they're not going anywhere, except that they continue to impact the world in a very striking way. And, and so that's why I want to bring them back out and isolate them as images or isolate them as individual objects and, and have them be resituated into a cultural context so that we can understand them. There's so much in our everyday life as, as materials we don't think about at all. And I think they need to be thought about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's, you know, on the one hand and, 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 uh, you know, it is thinking about your art that I, that I think about, uh, these, you know, sort of individual pieces of, of garbage, uh, which, which make me think, which I can get my head around. And especially, um, as you, as you isolate them or as you discuss them or, or foreground them, you know, I can really understand, uh, these, these individual pieces of garbage. Um, but there are so many, Pam, you know, yeah. you've, you've spent 15 years and you've gone to a lot of beaches and a lot of oceans and you've taken out a lot of garbage, but we still have, you know, you haven't fixed it yet, have you? Yeah, and you know, I don't know that it's fixable, truly, in some way. Um, I think there might be uh, some aspect of it that, you know, carries with it um, our prophecy, essentially. Um, so that's why I call some of these things prophetic objects. Yeah. And um, so back to the idea about the, the single item, the straw. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not only being talked about, it literally is being eliminated, and it's being eliminated in a very rapid way. And that's what gives me hope, actually. And, you know, straws are what we call the low-hanging fruit, and that's been, you know, the, uh, the sort of target for everybody in the plastic pollution activism um, society, you know, so it's not that that's a society, but, the, you know, the group of people all over the world that are doing this. Um, and I think it's because it's easy to make that argument. And then, lo and behold, we have the, you know, extremely excruciatingly sad, um, you know, turtle that went viral on the Internet that had gotten a straw up its nose and was, you know, painfully uh, having it extracted um, while it's bleeding out of the nose and the turtle is gagging practically and crying. And... That became, that became the reason. So as things are evolving at an extremely fast pace, this is also picking up momentum. The first 10 years I did this, I, I just felt like I was walking, you know, with a few people in line with me and it was almost hopeless. And, and then surely, uh, you know, enough, it really started happening and it's gaining momentum. And I think it's going to be, you know, this kind of thing where there is a tipping point and there's going to be a point where everybody realizes exactly what's happening with this plastic material. It's toxicity to humans even. 
we are now starting to realize. And the CDC right down the street is studying that. I want to circle back and talk a little bit more. Uh, I mentioned your images before and talking about you know, the photographs and the images themselves of the of the plastic, the garbage um, that you uh, that you fetishize and and, uh, and and force us to look at very very directly and think about um, but your work in in these in these series um, also includes a uh, very uh, sort of interesting and and original and uh, somewhat curious frame uh, uh, your 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 images are uh, contained within a form uh, that looks a little bit like a police report or something yeah. uh, and that has some fields uh, that you that you fill out uh, and can you talk about why you decided to do that and uh, and, and what that means yeah um, I feel like my practice actually involves this this kind of forensic study of the objects and so um, I guess you could call it a kind of forensic aesthetics and those objects are not just garbage they actually are uh, sources of tremendous amounts of information. They are telling us a story, not only about ourselves, but I also believe about the ocean itself and the life within the ocean. And in my most mystical uh, state of mind, which is at present almost all the time, I believe there are a form of communication from the ocean, that there is a kind of consciousness on this planet and the ocean is in dire straits right now, and that it is actually using this material, the material that we have made, because we understand it, to communicate with us. So if you look at these things, they are not uh, simply the thing you threw away. They've become transformed, and that's when they become a drifter object. So these ones that are um, the ones that are delivering the message, I think, are the most important ones, and they're the ones I tend to put into these frameworks that you talk about. So the, um, the labeling has to do with, um, I, I do feel like, you know, there's, there's an aspect of archaeology to it, this as well. I used to work as a scientific illustrator for a paleontologist, so I'm really into this sort of digging into the past. And even though this is the past that's very recent, it's also somehow going to be our future that these are the future fossils of our time. And so when I, um, when I look at them, I think about all of those things. And they're going to be the layer in the geologic time scale that identifies you know, the late uh, 20th century, beginning of 21st century. Um, so a lot of it has to do with who found it, because I think that's really interesting. And, and in the beginning, it was only me collecting things. But it, as this, this sort of uh, enterprise has grown into a global one, people now send me things. Or when I'm out with a, a team, um, even just people that join us, they become part of the team. You know, we're, they're all Drifters Project members. So we're, um, we're finding things. And, and I always encourage people to find the thing that is a message for them, because it's definitely out there. And what that does is it puts the it puts the you know the person who's doing a beach cleaning out of the mode of being a janitor into the mode of being a detective and also having an open heart and mind to the fact that you are engaging with an entity that's much bigger than you, much more powerful than you, and it's it is speaking to us, I think. Learn more about Pam's mission by visiting thedriftersproject.net and following her on Instagram and Facebook with The Drifters Project. 
Thank you for joining us in this inaugural issue of the Five Points Podcast. We look forward to sharing future episodes with you, so please subscribe and rate the show on your podcast app. Future releases will serve as companion pieces to our spring and fall issues. For more information on Five Points, please visit us at fivepoints.gsu.edu.